Welcome to The Real Deal, where we get real about what it takes to succeed. Whether it's wealth, health, relationships, or finding your purpose, we talk to the masters to uncover the secrets to defying the odds and creating your own rock star legacy. I'm Doug, and after working on multiple Grammy-winning records as an author, transformational speaker, and your personal translightenment coach, I'm committed to your growth and success. And now, here's the real deal. Are you ready? I am ready. Oh, beautiful. Today's episode of The Real Deal On is brought to you by GuidedHypnotic.com. That's GuidedHypnotic.com. Are you stressed out, anxiety-ridden, perhaps experiencing night terrors or worse, day terrors? Then go ahead to GuidedHypnotic.com and download your free Guided Hypnotic Meditation. There you go. Hold on. Let me go there and download it. Yeah, yeah it's, we got the time, right? Get everybody, get everybody a second to go over there. Go, go yeah. hypnotic and download it before you, you become hypnotized by Doug's background. That's, that's right. All right. So we have an amazing, amazing opportunity right now to learn more from a dear friend and, uh, you know, other than conscious mentor, uh, just being blessed to be uh, friends and, and able to hang with you. I, um, you know, we're so honored to just have you as part of our family and we get to vicariously experience your incredible work that you do for the world and uh, do everything we can to support you. So let's learn more about you so everyone can sink their teeth into the gift they have. Meet Frank McKinney, a true modern-day renaissance man, real estate artist, six times international best-selling author in five genres, philanthrocapitalist, ultra-marathoner, actor, and aspirational speaker who sees opportunities and creates markets where none existed before. Upon attending his fourth high school in four years, he was asked to leave the first three. Frank earned his high school diploma with a 1.8 GPA. Then with $50 in his pocket and without the benefit of further education, Frank left his native Indiana for Florida in search of his life's highest calling. Now, you probably know Frank because his real estate market prowess is unheard of. He has built spec homes, homes built without a buyer, valued in the tens of millions of dollars, shattering price records with each new project. And Frank started with a $50,000 fixer-upper and climbed all the way up to a $50 million oceanfront mansion on spec. Now, he's that background, as you can see, if you're watching this, you are from 3492 South Ocean Avenue, which is amazing. We'll share in that your biggest project is the uh, Caring House project and where you have built, what, 27 self-sustaining villages in Haiti. Oh, my gosh. That, I mean, that's huge. Um, so, dude, thank you so much for sharing your most valuable asset, your time, and uh, we really are blessed to, to have this opportunity. So welcome to The Real Deal on, for the second time, actually, by the way. The first time we were coming to your audience from another project that I had done down the street in Ocean Ridge, the very first micro mansion, which I, I sold, went to school on first, went to school, learned about what the market had to say about building a beautiful mansion, but only on a smaller scale. And the result is what you see over my shoulder, which is 3492 South Ocean that we recently finished a $14 million direct oceanfront house. And uh, having been there uh, in various stages, it is 
amazing. You know, I've seen the beginnings, like even the house before the teardown. And then what it is today is beyond amazing. You know, one of the most done, beautiful properties. We've done over 40 direct oceanfront houses in the 28 years that we've been building on the ocean. And, and, and we build them on speculation, by the way. So I don't have a buyer in mind when I start these. I have no partner. It's really me, the bank, the IRS, and my wife. <laughs> uh, but this, this really is the, the most beautiful, not the biggest, not the most expensive, but in a minute, I'll spin the camera around to show you. I keep looking out there because the ocean is literally right there up through these big, huge picture windows. Matter of fact, let me just do yeah. it right now. Is it raining by you? It's pouring right here by me. Oh, no, 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 no. Look at this. Oh, I don't know. The sun may wash this out, but. Wow. Yep. How's that? Uh, it's, you know, I, 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 I'd slum it there. <sighs> did, did, that, did the sun burn out the image? Nope. Or you get no, no, it looked great. Okay. So that's why I, yeah, I decided to uh, come to you today because this is my final masterpiece after building all of these houses on speculation. I get to either go into my garage and hop on my unicorn or my Yugo and ride off into the sunset or sunrise in this case when this thing sells. Right on. So share, uh, I think, a little background. I know you shared the, the, in the first episode and, and your story is incredible. Um, and I think there's some telling experiences if we unpack it as we go, some of the consistent decisions and actions you've taken to take you where you are and then where you started, $50 in your pocket and nowhere to really live or anything and starting from scratch. Yeah, there's really nothing extraordinary about having only $50 in your pocket at 18. I mean, most 18-year-olds don't have much more than that. But they so usually stay home. Yeah, they, and they stay home for a while. I, it's really what I chose to do, you know, not with the $50, but, but taking out, and I'm going to use a couple props today. Let's imagine my mouse is, is an eraser, and I kind of turned around to the chalkboard of life and, and erased a, a very troubled past. I was in juvenile detention centers, uh, well, center seven on seven different occasions before I turned 18. As you mentioned in the introduction, Doug, I went to four high schools in four years, so with that kind of GPA, I couldn't pursue any kind of education, but with that eraser and turning around and erasing that checkered pass and getting on a plane and coming to Florida with a one-way plane ticket, basically everything I could carry in a duffel bag, I wanted to make something in my life. I really didn't know what it was at 18. I had no idea, but I knew what it wasn't. And it wasn't the self-destructive tendencies and patterns, cycles that I kept having recur as a, as a teenager. So if there's a time to make the mistakes and have these self-destructive patterns, it was then. And when I landed, uh, I swore off all unhealthy vices and temptations. Anything that would take away from what I was now as a post-mortem, as I look back, was a, the pursuit of that professional highest calling. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and you come from Indiana to Florida. I mean, you come from basically a, a little farm in Indiana to, to Florida. You're around affluence. You're around lifestyles of rich and famous. You're around you know, MTV Cribs. And it's just, it was such a culture shock that I wanted as a young man, being very consumeristic and materialistic, I wanted a piece of it. But how? You know, no, no network, no friends, no money, no connections, no education. Uh, and I just started to, to associate myself or try to be around affluence. Well, how'd you pick Florida? Well, this is a very little known fact. I, um, before I moved to Florida, I went to California 
uh, I was going to be an actor. And then I figured, well, let's, I want to be a stuntman. And there was a stunt school in California called Kim Kahana Stunt School. I don't know if it's still around. And I wanted to come to Florida to earn enough money to go to that stunt school. And when I landed here, I loved it. I mean, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any plans of staying for now 30 plus years. I don't know how long, 30, almost 40 years. Uh, and so it was warm. I mean, in, in Indiana, I left in, on January 11th. I let, got on a plane and it was like two below zero. And I landed and it was balmy. <laughs> and you just fell in love. And where was Del Rey or that area where you land, like West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, when you landed? How, how did you end up where you're at now? I had a job in Deerfield at Deer Creek Country Club as a maintenance worker on the golf course. I actually had it set up before I came. Okay. Too tough to get a maintenance job. And, but, but I will tell you, being on that golf course, I was around affluence, Doug. I was around people mm -hmm. who play golf all day. Then I got transferred over to the tennis courts as a maintenance worker. I'm around the same people that are playing golf or they're playing tennis in the afternoon and they just never seem to work. <laughs> so, I, I went and I, I became a certified teaching professional, tennis teacher. I was a tennis instructor, tennis pro, certified, had a license that said I could teach tennis. And that is where on that tennis court, as my own boss, as my own business owner, I started my own business. I left that country club and I started my own tennis instruction business. And I was going to very affluent communities that were just being built in South Florida in the mid to late eighties. Uh, and, um, I earned my PhD in entrepreneurship and my master's in real estate on that tennis court, teaching wealthy people how to hit a better forehand or a backhand. But they taught me that really, Frank, real estate was where to go. Real estate was the path. Real estate was the path that they chose that really allowed them to live in, the, in like places like the Sanctuary and the Sea Ranch Club. These are very, you know, multi-million dollar communities. And, and Doug, I was making, as a tennis instructor at 21, I was making over hundred grand a year. And, and I had, I bought a Ferrari. It was a used Ferrari. It was a piece of crap. It was all rusty, but it looked good. It was like the Magnum <laughs> PI Ferrari. And, and I, I was on my way. Like I, 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 I really listened during those hour long tennis lessons that I would be paid for. I would tire the person out after 45 minutes and they'd have to sit down. And that's where I learned and earned my PhD in entrepreneurship over a two year span. Questions were you asking and how did you learn how to ask the right questions in order to be able to apply it? One, one thing you'll learn throughout the whole interview today, I am a simpleton. I am a very linear thinker. So if somebody was taking a tennis lesson from me and could afford 50 bucks an hour, drove up to the tennis lesson in a Ferrari or Mercedes, closed the door behind them of this $4 million house and had a yacht out back, if it was a man, they had a beautiful wife. If it was a woman, they had a handsome husband. They had the kids. They had everything. They had, they had what I wanted. So the, the simple question was, how did you get here? You know, how, how are you able to live in this house and drive this car and have that yacht and have that wife and that husband? And the answer I got more often than not was, oh, Frank, I was a very, you know, successful trial lawyer. And I won a lot of money in court and at the settlement table. But from that first settlement check that I got, I bought a duplex. And, 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 you know, so I kept hearing stories, real estate anecdotal stories at the end of, really now as I look back, those people were nine to fivers. Simple nine to five. They were lawyer or doctor or inventor or whatever. My nine to five was tennis instruction. 
that's, I work from, you know, what are we, eight to about six, but I was, that was my cubicle, right? But the real money that they made that I learned from them wasn't from the courtroom or from the, the operating room. It was from real estate. And, and, and so in, 19, in the late, in 1987, I bought my first Fixer Upper, a $50,000 crack house in a bad part of town. Flipped it and made, you know, this is before flip was even a word outside of the sport of gymnastics. <laughs> I mean, nobody was talking about flipping. Uh, I made seven grand. And, 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 and really, if it wasn't for, I'll tell you, Doug, it was a very, it was a very lonely existence because at my stage, I put, I put a post up a couple of weeks ago about a group I started called the Young Entrepreneurial Society. I started that way back. Matter of fact, it's back before I even had short hair, if you want to see what that looks like. And I couldn't find many people that, want, that were aspirational in their early 20s. It was drugs, it was women, it was you know, drinking, it was hanging out, it was wasting time. And I didn't have any time to waste. Like I had already wasted my teenage years and my educational years, I you know, flunked out all those schools. I needed to get to work. And so surrounding myself with those people and endearing myself to those people that I was teaching tennis to it really rewired my DNA. They were operators, owner operators. Like that's another kind of distinction because as you were seeing them, were they the ones going out there and doing the work kind of like, cause you basically did the, the rehab yourself on your, on your first house. How did you figure out how to do that? Did you find that out from them or were you also now seeking out other, uh, or you just trial by fire? No, I will tell you, to be honest, I can't change a light bulb. I, I did in, anything on my early projects, and even to this day on my current projects, anything that's unskilled, I can do that. You know, so in the early days, if there was demolition involved, if I had to lay sod, if I had to tear off a roof, I mean, that doesn't take skill at all. Literally, if you gave me a light bulb and told me to change the burnt out one, I would probably break two of them before I was able to get the third one in. It's bad. So, so what I had to do is, is I would observe, I would drive down the same street I might've bought a house on. And if one, and a house was getting renovated or restored or what have you, I would pull over and I would just, from my car, I'd watch. And I'd watch to see if the, 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 the handyman, wasn't even a general contractor at that point, was, you know, did he look like he knew what he was doing? Was he organized? And then I would approach that job and ask, hey, you know, I got a job down the street. Would you like to come over and take a look at it? What I always did, Doug, was while the skilled work was taking place, you know, let's say this handyman that I hired to do the renovations, I was always on site basically as his right-hand man, like his, his gopher, doing the unskilled stuff. But you better believe while I was cleaning up the trash and tearing off the roof out of my corner of my left eye, I'm watching him and I'm learning not his skill that I wanted to absorb and become a skilled person. I needed to know if he was skilled enough to take my house to the level that I wanted him to. And if mm. not, then I would find somebody else. And, and really back then, Doug, I, I became a real estate artist. And it's something that uh, it, it, USA Today called me that maybe 15 years ago. It's something I'm really proud of. It's not something I gave myself. It's something that, that a, you know, a, a periodical a newspaper said, this man is a real estate artist. And I, I have been that real estate artist since that first crack house. I was so proud of the fact that I could deliver the American dream to somebody who was renting it 
I wanted you to own it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of owning the American dream. I don't buy and hold things. We can talk a little bit about that, but that's not my expertise. It's buy, add value, and sell like nobody. And, and I, I, I loved providing, mind you, for five years, I didn't do a house worth more than $100,000. So I got really good at the craft, not the business, the craft of real estate and hone that skill as a real estate artist on the lesser priced homes so that when you see the world's own over my right shoulder or whatever it is, left shoulder okay. there, you, this is the world's only aquasphere. I mean, it's a spherical aquarium that has clownfish and jellyfish and, and blue tangs in it. I mean, those are the things that really, those, some of those ideas, not specifically, but they started back with the $100,000 houses. And I remember uh, going to one of your trainings about that. Uh, your philosophy behind that work you, the way you shared it was brilliant in the way you present and you can do that on a smaller budget. You don't have to like where you're at now, obviously you can provide that level of creativity, but even on the $50,000 crack house, some of the things that you shared in the presentation and how to expose people to the opportunity and the marketing of it was, was brilliant and still is obviously. You know, yeah, and I don't want to make this a whole real estate show, but of course, if you get if you get into the mindset, it, it, the reason I implore people to take an artist approach to their business, not just the business of real estate, but whatever business you're in, if you can dumb it down enough to realize that if you went, if you were an artist and you go to, a, and you are actually, you 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 know, you are you sing and you play an instrument. Mm -hmm. So if if or if I was a painter, if I go into the art supply store, am I going to buy the cheapest palette? to put my paint on? And am I gonna look for the watered down paint to save a, you know, a dollar a gallon or a dollar a bottle? And am I gonna buy the paintbrush that's made out of you know, grass versus camel hair or whatever they're made out of? No, you're gonna buy the good stuff because you're proud of your artistry, just like you. You're gonna buy the best yep. guitar, you're gonna get the right microphone and the right amp because you wanna sound and look good. That, that's, why do people bifurcate that when it comes to their business? I don't understand, especially the real estate business. Most investors cut freaking corners. And I'll tell you what, if you're new to the, the if you're new to life for that matter, it doesn't have to be new to the real estate business or you're new to business, not new to life. That would be kind of Ellie. But, but if you're, if you're new to business, build your reputation first and the bottom line will follow. Yep. Build that reputation. Most people focus on the bottom line and it, and too much so to the detriment of the reputation. I did the exact opposite. I made smaller margins. My profit margins were smaller on my early houses, Doug, because I wanted to build a reputation. And well, clearly you have, and you break up an interesting point. I think it was Steve Jobs or maybe it was Wozniak, the Apple um, founders that talked about like they painted the inside or they like they made the inside of the computers look as good as the outsides. And similar to what you shared, the, that approach, because they're like, even though no one's going to see it, they still wanted to be sure that it was going to have the same energy, the same professionalism, the same level of, uh, without a, you know, lack of a better term, perfection. You know, like some people, you know, painting the other side of the fence that no one's going to see. You know what, though? Here's the thing. You'd be surprised at what people see. And, and even right. Jobs and Wozniak to paint the inside of the computer, somebody's going to take that thing apart. Right. Somebody's going to look in there and somebody's going to say, oh, my God, they cheaped out. And that'll that'll get blasted to the press. I, I can't tell you how many sales I have made at the high end level 
because the psychology of the ultra wealthy buyers is we could spend a whole show on the psychology of the ultra wealthy buyer it's fascinating i've studied it for 28 years but oftentimes in one of my houses you know my 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 air conditioning and mechanical closets are so detailed these are places that very few people very few i didn't say nobody very few people open the door but i have had men who look in my air conditioning closet where it's it's got its own air conditioning uh, system. It's got it's it's got trim. It's got marble floor. Every, all the wires are tied perfectly together, and have them come to me and say, "Well, if you got that right, I know you got the rest of the house right." Sit themselves on the couch. Wait till the wife gets done. If the wife likes it, Frank, we're buying it based upon what they saw in my mechanical room. Yep. Well, how you do anything's how you do everything. Yep. And that's that's something lost. It's it's lost on the artistry of business. And, and, and that's a macro statement. Not everybody loses it. Some apply it, but those who do apply it enjoy a stellar reputation and a pretty fat bottom line. Absolutely. Well, a lot of the work that I do when if I'm working with companies is exactly that. The investment in their most valuable asset, their staff, their people, their human capital. And they become the raving fans for that. So the customers know that like Disney is a great example like people go to Disney and they go, man, the, the staff, they're, they're on, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. But that's part of the experience. You know, when you get there that you're going to have, you can trust an amazing experience because of the quality of experience at every level that even the, you know, doesn't matter who's working there. They're all adding value to the experience. Um, yeah. Little, little I mean, things. Really, t- taking care of your employees uh, people that work for you is it's, it's a whole other level the way that, that large companies do that. I mean, my daughter's entering the workforce now and, and some of the perks, she hasn't got her job yet, but some of the perks that she's gone places and interviewed for you and I, I mean, we, you can only imagine like the, you know, the, the free buffet, the free, you know, childcare, the game rooms, all the things like that. But that is designed to, to breed loyalty and, and, yep. and happiness on while they're on the job. And, you know, I, I try to create a Disney environment for the people that work for me. You know, I, I, I really do. And I want them to, I'm, I, I drive very hard. I, I, I'm not easy to work for. I, I, if there's anything, well, there's a lot of things I could improve. But that's one thing that I've worked on for years is not burning people out because, I, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that you can always better your previous best. But if you can always better your previous best, and that's my expectation, eventually you burn out <laughs> because right. it, you can't just keep bettering your previous best. Uh, but, but I like the, you know, I like the Disney analogy. So how have you been then adjusting with some of these new challenges and have you seen patterns because you've been in the business for so many years, you've done so many things between, you know, being an author, doing your charity work, being a runner, the, the ultra marathon, the bad water, like you've accomplished so much and there's always been resistance, I'm sure. Um, from different areas and different angles and what has been your relationship with those resistances and what patterns have you seen that you've been able to access to overcome? You know, as a visionary or, or somebody who, who, and I know this is going to sound a little egotistical, but I, I think at my age and my stage of life, I, I feel like I'm two or three chess moves away or two or three chess moves ahead of most people I interact with. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that's not an indictment on humanity. It's just that I am so conditioned to that resistance that you just referred to mm-hmm. that, you know, get it out of the way. You know, I, I understand a, a, an aquasphere has never been built before and, and it's going to be impossible and we can't do it. Okay. You said your piece, 
Now, let's go do it. And, and I'm so used to o- overcoming, you know, to, to, to set yourself apart. Matter of fact, we're talking a little bit about branding now. Mm-hmm. Personal branding is the art of amplifying your essence to the state of, of or to the point where your customers, either, either current or future, become subliminally intoxicated with you first, then your product or service. And so I've worked very hard subconsciously and consciously to build that brand. And part of the brand building process is to set yourself apart. I mean, you know, in the line of work that you're in, there's a lot of people that do and and have, you know, podcasts and have YouTube channels. But, you know, the the way you introduced your program, it was funny. It gets your attention. The background gets the attention. The guidedhypnotic.com gets your attention. You know, we're in a competitive world, especially I'm in the real estate business. It's kind of boring if you think about it. But being a real estate artist and building and creating on a sun-drenched canvas known as the Atlantic Ocean, there's nothing boring about that. So I, I just think you've got you to condition yourself to accept the resistance, not resist the resistance. Right. That's why I work from a treehouse. You know, people laugh at me that, I mean, not today, I'm not there, but I work from a treehouse. I don't want to be, sur- I have nobody around me, you've been up there, mm-hmm. uh, that, can, that I can feed or feel anything negative. I, I implore your viewers to create their own reality. And right now, that has never been harder in, in or more important. Alive to create your own, because every entity is, is vying for your attention to, to create your reality for you. And I'm not gonna let it happen. You know, you, you, I mean, the media is a whole other thing. They're, 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 they're conditioned, it's advocacy journalism. They advocate for one thing or there's no journalism anymore. It's advocacy journalism. Yep. And that's all perhaps subconsciously, sublimally, sublimally designed to create your own reality for you, resist that. Do not allow another person or, or another entity, be it the media, to create your own reality. And, and Doug, I know that's kind of a rant, but but that has allowed me to 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 create this kind of reality for a family, one family. It's all it takes is one family to come in here and pay me fourteen million dollars for this beautiful home. It's 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 really it's it's a little lonely because there's a fine line between eccentricity and lunacy. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's true. Which side do you live on mostly? Well, the difference between the, the eccentric and the lunatic is the eccentric has the money. The lunatic doesn't have the money. <laughs> They're both the same person. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, it, it, it allows, like, when I, when I unveil one of my prop- properties, you've been to a couple of our unveilings. Mm-hmm. They're, very, they're very theatrical. They're, they're very bombastic. They're very, you know, uh, showy. Uh, but I will tell you, on, on the outside, if you, you know me really well, Heidi knows me really well. There's very few people that know me re- as well as you guys do. On the outside to the, to the world, I'm 80% flash, 20% substance. But in reality, I'm 80% substance and 20% flash. If you don't have the substance to back up your flash, you won't be around for 30 years like I have building these houses. It's yeah. easy to generate flash and be the greatest show, showman on earth or whatever the name of that movie was, which was a great movie. Uh, but I don't want to be a flash in the pan variety of success. So I mean, how did you develop that mindset? Like w- when you were building your, uh, let me just start with your uh, tennis thing. Did you already have that flash, the, the, that marketing sort of 
mindset or, and when did that start to become like the, the level greatest showman on earth, the, the, the level at which you took that marketing? Well, you know, you've heard me say this before and I'll try to keep it short, you know, for, for, your, for your benefit, but a lot of your viewers haven't heard my take on motivation, inspiration and aspiration. Mm -hmm. so, so motivation washes off and goes down the drain with a soap at night. Yep. If, if you and I motivated somebody today, we failed. You failed with your program and I failed as your guest because we can't stay motivated to stay on a diet, to, 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 to stay on an exercise program, to stay with some business philosophy. As human beings, you, the viewer, were not meant to stay motivated. It will wash off your body and go down the drain with a soap at night. Stay with me. That should be relieving, by the way, because I can't stay motivated. Okay, Frank, what about inspiration? Mm -mm. Inspiration is like watching a, a really inspiring movie or reading an inspiring book. It lasts about a week, like, like a sunburn. It'll, it'll dissipate. You can't even stay inspired. But this is a roundabout answer to your question, Doug. Aspiration will alter your DNA. And I said, as a young man, who do you aspire to emulate, Frank? Who is it that you look up to where you can, you're not going to copy them, but you're going to absorb some of their mannerisms and patterns into your own DNA, into your own person. And at a young age, I loved Willy Wonka. I mean, these are fictional characters. I now, now, not because of the candy and all that. If you read the book, actually, besides watching the movie, it's the greatest marketing book ever written. It is the greatest. I'm asked all the time by you know, academia, what's the best marketing book you ever read? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. Because look at the, the, the hype that he created. Look at the way those people were going crazy to buy his chocolates because of the marketing genius, a little bit of eccentricity, a little bit of lunacy, a little bit of, uh, you know, he, he pulled things back and kept things from people. You know, the ultra wealthy want what they can't have. That's why I put a veil over my houses. Mm -hmm. So who do you aspire to emulate? And I, I picked Willy Wonka. I picked Robin Hood. Uh, I picked Evil Knievel. These are I mean, two of those three are fictional characters. And if Evil Knievel wasn't a real person, it would, he could have easily been a, a fictional right, character. Right, yeah. So, so those are the things that I still do to this day. Uh, is I, I say, okay, I want to market myself as a tennis pro. And, and so let's absorb some things that are attention getting into my DNA so that I can be, I can make a hundred grand a year as a tennis instructor at 21. And now at the, at the level that we play at now with the real estate, uh, there's a method to that madness, Doug. You've been to the unveilings. It's not, mm -hmm. a, it's not a tribute to ego because there's a difference between healthy and unhealthy ego. Yep. Unhealthy ego, we know what that looks like. You can, fend, you, can, you can feel it, you can sense it. Healthy ego says two things. I'm extremely passionate about what I do and, actually three things, and I believe I'm one of the best in the world at it. The third thing is, and I'm not afraid to tell you about it. Very passionate. I'm not the best in the world because that's unhealthy ego. I'm one mm -hmm. of the best at building oceanfront spec houses. And there's only 40,000 people out of 8 billion that can afford what I do for a living. So I better not be afraid to tell people about it. So were you always that confident in your abilities? Like when you were starting, like I assume you played tennis before um, to, to do that. Like, did you always have that level of confidence? And how did you shield 
from the the naysayers the negativity and which ultimately could potentially influence your own thoughts because that's really the the biggest problem is the negative the naysayers then you buy into that bs that's did you ever struggle with that that's the difference you're right that is a difference now i'm gonna tell you i am afraid every day of my life and i'm i'm insecure every single day of my life i feel insecurities i i feel fear uh what if this house doesn't sell? You know, what, what if what, you know, all these things that I've, I'm told and I hear all the time. The difference is I don't let my insecurity stop me. I don't let the fear stop me because fear, Doug, fear is, is associated with the thought of taking a risk. It's not the actual taking of the risk that right. causes you to be afraid. It's the thought of starting the guidedhypnotic.com. It's the thought of building a house at $14 million in South Palm Beach. In a, basically, South Palm Beach has four houses in the whole town. It's not Palm Beach, and it's not right. Manalapan. It's South Palm Beach. It's the thought of, oh, my God, it, 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 I may be building a white elephant here. But it's like getting on a in, – in, in, in a, let's go back to Disney – getting on a roller coaster and, and, and having that big metal bar clunk down on top of you and then start clickety-clacketing up that first hill slowly with everybody else. Your heart's pounding. I mean, your, your blood pressure's up. You're terrified because of the thought of what's about to happen. When it happens and you take the plunge in business, or you take the plunge on the roller coaster, what's, it re what's the fear replaced by? Excitement. Yep. You know, joy. And, and when we get to the end of the ride, we get to the back of the line, we do it again. Yeah, get back on. Get back on. So, so please, you know, don't, uh, don't assume that I'm not afraid or have insecurities. I have both. But I don't. I don't let them stop me. So how do you not let them stop you? So the, how does it show up for you when the, that fear comes in? Is it a conversation? Is it an image? And then how do you move past it? What is your experience with getting represented to your confidence, your abilities, your There's skills? two things that I do. I do two things when, he, when fear hits me. I, um, I realize that that thought that I'm taking, I'm having, is almost always associated with a big change or a big challenge in my life. It could be dietary, it could be relational, it could be financial, it could be spiritual, but it's the thought of making that big change or meeting a big challenge that results in that fear. But then I go back and say, wait, Frank, okay, so you're thinking about this big change or big challenge that, that results in the sensation of fear. What, what would you rather do? Would you rather regret not taking that big change or challenge? Or would you rather regret taking the big change or challenge? Because let's face it, if I'm sitting in my rocking chair at 80 years old, we're going to have regrets. We're just, it's just a fact of life. I'd rather regret what I did. And so I look in the mirror and I say, okay, now I do research. And of course, I've, I've, I've not taken every risk that I've thought about, Doug. There's plenty mm -hmm. I've walked away from. But I look in the mirror and I say, all right, so you're feeling, you're feeling that sensation of fear because you're thinking about taking a risk and that risk is associated with a big change. The design of this house, the location, a big challenge running 135 miles across the Death Valley Desert in July. And I, I, I say, you know what? Don't say yes more than no to these things. It's that simple. Say yes more than no. And eventually I will build enough confidence to take the risk. It doesn't eliminate the fear. People look for that magic pill to eliminate fear in their life uh, or, or eliminate insecurities. 
That's why God gave us the sensation. You are not going to eliminate it. You're going to, and you're not even going to manage it. You're going to confront it. You're going to embrace it. And you're going to say, okay, I know I'm feeling afraid because there's a big change or challenge out there. And I'm going to say yes to this one. Awesome. So how did, when those are risks that we, that are intentional, that you're going to, to take, when things that are out of our control, like as an example, you know, we're here and dealing with COVID and all of that, what kind of, how did you navigate and mitigate the, those like, okay, now that's something that's outside of all of our control. How did you have an experience with that? Cause you're still pushing through, you're still, you know, making stuff happen. It's a, it's another level of resistance. Yeah, but I'll tell you, with, with something like COVID, and it's, it's a kind of a weird example because, you know, it, 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 there's nothing else like it that has happened in my life. Well, that's why, yeah, so I think it's a valuable thing because nobody's had that. It's because so it's easy for you to say, Frank, you took those risks. But what about I couldn't change the, the fact that this happened? Those, those are the times that you, you, get in, you get in your little inner tube and you float down the river with it. I, I don't try to paddle against it. I, uh, matter of fact, I wrote a, a, a post about you know, if you, if you Google how, how fast right now we're sitting on this planet, and it's, it's actually spinning on its axis at over a thousand miles an hour. I mean, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. We Why don't we crash, fall off? We'd be we, we fly, we fly, <laughs> flying out into the middle of nowhere. Uh, but but I, I realized, well, when the globe stopped spinning, which it did, it stopped dead three months ago and for about three months. Uh, I stopped with it. And I, you know, I chose to, to, to get inside old journals of mine that I had written years ago and read about behavioral patterns that I was exhibiting in old, like I, I rarely go back and read my own old journals, but I did it. I read one that I kept for a year. I read every page and went back for a year. And I said, wow, you, you've mastered some of those thought processes, but others you're still, you're still thinking that way. You're still making those mistakes. So I used it as a time for introspection. Because from a thousand miles an hour to zero, uh, sitting on that raft and saying, okay, or the, the, the inner tube and floating down the river with it, th there was no, I mean, there was no real estate showings. There was no, there, obviously there was no live events to speak mm -hmm. at. I was supposed to be in Europe at this time doing a mega tour over there. All that got canceled. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't resist that at all. That's futile. I mean, right. it's one thing to have inner battles about risk that you can control. But I'd rather just sit on the raft or the inner tube, float down the river with the COVID, uh, strategize, try to become a better human being during those three months with my family, mm -hmm. with my daughter, and then come out of it. And, and, and Doug, you know, I mean, we had, we've had more showings of this house between May 1st and June 15th than I had from January 1 to May, to May, May 1st. Wow. And maybe it has to do with some of the strategies we came up with during COVID. Maybe it was just luck. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Because I ask, because sometimes, you know, especially guys like you make it look so easy because of how hard you've worked. People don't understand, you know, like they forget, right? Like they go, oh, easy for you because you're in that situation that you've created. But when it's something that we can all relate to because we've all been hit in a certain way, it's interesting to learn how people handled it because some freaked out. Right. Some people got mad at the fact that it was happening and got, you know, their relationship with the meaning they were giving the situation. So I was just bringing it up as just to 
hear from someone who has had huge resistance that you put yourself into and how you were able to apply it, what wisdom you've had in an experience that you didn't put yourself in. If you know, you go, when you're going to run Badwater, you're going to say, I'm going to write, you know, these books or I'm going to take these risks. You're consciously putting yourself in there. Yeah. So it's like, where did you, the, the patterns of how you applied the stuff you put yourself into versus the stuff that just kind of came at you? Well, going back to one of the first motivational books I ever read was Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, Stephen Covey's book. Mm-hmm. And I re- what really resonated with me from that book, it's still a great book, by the way, for those of you who have never read it, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, one thing really resonated with me is circle of concern versus circle of influence. Mm. I can be I can be concerned about some things like COVID, like like uh, you know the civil unrest, but there's there's only certain things that I can influence, and if I can't influence it, then I don't I don't resist it, I don't fight it. I I, I might be shocked by COVID, of course we we're all shocked by it, and I might be dismayed by what I see going on on the streets of America, and and that is something actually I can I can I can influence. I can do something about the the civil unrest, and I'm learning about that more through my daughter, who, who is a different generation and how she sees things versus how, at my age, how I see things. And, it, and, and it's like, okay, well, then there, there is a way for me to learn um, and to, to maybe shift a little bit from circle of concern, I'm concerned about that, but I don't know if I can do anything about it, to I can influence something. The clash comes, or the resistance that you referred to, Doug, comes from not knowing where to draw the line between influence and concern. Right. And, and when, you, when you do have, have been given the ability to succeed at a lot of things, or many things that you put your mind to, that circle of influence is a little bit bigger than reality. I think I can influence more than I can, and that's where, that's where the anxiety comes in, the self-doubt comes in, and, and, and really that circle is, isn't this big. It's, it's, it's a little bit smaller than that. That's where you got to just be a little bit more humble and use humility. And how interesting, you know, when you bring up, you know, your daughter and, and her perspective of what's happened, what have you learned from her about all of this? Like, because obviously she's got a whole different model of the world in many respects, but you also a lot of you and Nilsa's influence. What did you notice about and did you learn anything? What distinctions or like, I'm sure it's a fascinating feedback. Yeah, it is because the racism is less is less prevalent at age 21 than it is in, in your 50s mm-hmm. uh, because of what we were around with our parents, you know. And it's funny because not not that and, and I, I I dare not you know piss anybody off, but I got to tell you for for most of my younger adult life, Doug, I had I had very long hair and I dressed you know kind of like a druggie. And I can't tell you how many times I was accused of being, you know, a hippie, a freak, a mm-hmm. druggie, a this. And, and even in business, you know, I, I, I still, you know, I get accused of that. And, and, and while it's not the same as being discriminated against because of the color of my skin, I still kind of, I felt it on a much smaller scale, what it was like for my entire life. So, you know, I, um, and all the, all the, I mean, for 15 years, we've been over in Haiti the population in Haiti, they're Haitian, but they're, they're black Haitian. There's very few white Haitians. I, I kind of didn't know how deep seated the, um, the, the, the oppression 
was until I talked to my daughter, until I really heard it from her perspective, how she saw people my age and her generation see people my age, that that, that, that oppression, you know, kind of has come from the, from the white man. And it kind of woke me up. I'm like, oh, well, if there's anything that I can be doing, and there is things I can be doing, you know, I, I, I really, every Friday, I give time, like I do some coaching. I don't do a lot of it. I don't have time for it, um, but I do it for the benefit of Caring House. Every Friday, I try to make time for somebody that's under 25 who's trying to, to, to make it, because I get requests all the time. And those people can't afford to donate to the Caring House. And I'm making sure that even on that smaller scale that I'm including all races, you know, that I'm making sure that, that when somebody that, that's black is asking me to help them, um, not preferential treatment, but that I'm, I'm more cognizant of that person might need what I've got to give a little bit more than the white 25 year old who already has an advantage. Cool. And how, so how do people find you to do that? Where is that like, cause that may be also, uh, a position some people may take is access. So how are you making yourself available so that there is a more in inclusive opportunity? I don't, I don't, if I were to make myself available, I'd never have any time. It's people, right. people, people seek me. They've read the books. Um, okay. Like I, yesterday I did a zoom interview with, with an 18 year old kid from Sweden. Awesome. You know, it just, and, and I really, really enjoy talking to that generation and, and especially those who, um, but still believe in free enterprise and capitalism because I'm a capitalist yep. and I believe in free enterprise. I'm a philanthropic capitalist, but I believe in capitalism and, uh, and I'm not there to talk politics with them, but here's just this young guy who has his own little podcast, just like you, but he's got a different, you know, different demographic, mm -hmm. different country altogether. And, and I, I really try to, to, you know, encourage people like that. Cause imagine Doug, you and me coming up at 18 to 20 years old now. Oh I, can't, I couldn't even. I mean, you got Ellie. You got you got. How old is she now? F five. Five. I mean, you know, what's her world going to look like? It's it's really going to look like how you frame it for her, and, and you've done a fantastic job. You really have. I don't think there's going to be any concerns with Ellie. She's very confident. She's very, you know, self assured. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to go off on the tangent, but I I, I think that. I think that the country's in really good hands when I get done talking to these 25 year old and younger uh, people from all races. That's encouraging um, because there, you know, there's a lot going on that I think is confusing to everyone. And we, we definitely need to have leadership opportunities for people to have conversations that are, um, you know, that are going to be healing and, and making a difference because there's a lot of pain out there. And um, I'm encouraged to, because I don't have, I don't have a lot of exposure, like, you know, with, with Laura and all that. I just, it's not, I don't have 20 year old friends really anymore. Right. Well, I hope not. <laughs> it's kind of weird. No, uh, I will tell you this though, Doug, you, there's a lot of pain, right? There's a lot of hurt yeah. out there. Uh, where where do you go? Where where does one typically go when they're younger to have that pain taken away? I, I, when I look at back, what I used to do is I you know well at twenty I, I stopped doing drugs. I went to music. I went to work, and that was younger what, than that. How about younger than? Oh, that? when I was yeah like 
16, I was... Or, or 10 or 8. Uh, Where did you go? Oh, television, um, escape that way, playing, um, and hopefully, you know, my family. So which, which person in your family most often is really skilled at taking pain away? Usually, usually mom. When we have a female president of this country, you will see a tremendous amount of healing. Women see things in three dimensions. Men see things in two dimension. There's a different dimension, a different perception from women. And I'm telling you, and there's not a woman running for president, unfortunately, but the, but the, but, but the way that the country is right now, it needs healing. And, and, and that's not being sexist at all, saying that it, you know, a woman is, she's not just a healer, she's an empowerer, she, she, she's a leader. We, we need that from the top down. We need, like I, sometimes when I'm coaching a woman, or a man, by the way, I, I tell the I tell the woman to find her why, and that's not W H Y. It's the letter Y. Find a little bit more of your Y chromosome, right? Got to do it. Be in touch with that that stronger side. And for men, you got to sensitize yourself by getting in touch with your ex, not your ex-wife, your X chromosome, because you've you've got to. And I'll tell you, when it comes to what I do for a living, Doug, the money rooms in a $100,000 house or a $14 million house are the same. The master bedroom, the master bathroom, and the kitchen. And yep. if I asked you what the gender of those three rooms was, you would tell, nine out of 10 people would tell me female, and they're mm -hmm. right. So when we design a beautiful kitchen or a beautiful master bath bathroom, for example, I have to make sure that I'm in touch with the X chromosome in my body to make sure that I appeal to that, that sensitive side of the woman who's gonna be walking into that room. Agreed. Uh, it's and that is such a an interesting conversation in that what it will take for us as a society to not only be ready for that, but more importantly, create the space that allows that a woman to have that femininity infused in it, just like you said, to tap into that, because it seems that in order to play in that field, they step up to be more in the live in the masculine just because that's where it's predominant anyway. So I think that's where I think some of the confusion could come because it seems like, you know, once you get into that environment, it, it becomes the diluted. It can, but, but I, you know, if you just go back to business and some of the women I've worked with in business and helping them come, come closer to their Y chromosome. Right. Um, you know, because it, it's not, it, in some cases it is a man's world that you're dealing in, you know, in the construction industry. My wife, if I go out of town and she comes on the job site, she gets more respect than I do because she's understood that she's tapped into that Y chromosome and she can become that, you know, that, that strong leader when she needs to be. And she, it's not when she needs to be, she can be it all the time. And, and I, I think that, that when, when, when I have, so I get asked all the time to write an endorsement for people's new books. And this has been interesting. So I, I very rarely say no. I mean, I'll research you to make sure you're not a, you know, a, a sex offender or, you know, somebody that I just don't want to endorse, endorse you. Gotta have standards. Yeah, I gotta have some standards. I, I research, if you're, if you're a decent person, or if I, of course, if I know you, I will ask you to make the first pass at the endorsement and I will edit it. And Doug, it's pretty interesting. Many, if not most women that I've asked to do that struggle mightily when I tell them, 
set humility, set humility aside, all humbleness aside, extol your virtues exactly as you'd want me to do it. And either they can't do it at all or they struggle with it. Men have a little bit easier time. Nobody gets it right, by the way. When I get an endorsement or even a forward for a book, when I write it, I blow it up. They're the greatest thing in the world. Most people struggle with that healthy ego that you've got to have mm-hmm. when it comes time to telling your story. And, and, I, and I noticed, you know, we didn't intend this to go to a, a male-female thing, but it, it was interesting. I just did one about a month ago. I really had to encourage this woman who's extremely successful and, and speaking from the stage and all that. She couldn't do it. She couldn't write it. She was so uh, humble and, 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 and shy about it. But the exercise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write it from, the, some, from scratch. I helped her. She mm-hmm. did it. And it was a really, really good exercise of building self-esteem, her own self-esteem. I mean, you bring that up. I know we are both are published by the same company and, and uh, I had no forwards written. I know I talked to you about it and it was, it was a timing thing to get it done before the went to print and all of that. And I think there was a part of me as well. Just it, it was difficult for me to like, oh, man, I got to write it. And, and I felt like pressure, like to to be in a way that is un like unnatural for me. I'm, I'm not generally uh Hey, you know, like, let me do that. And I remember when I was in eighth grade, our math teacher told us to grade our own papers. And I, I gave myself like a 70 and it's just so interesting. So then, you know, this kind of leads to another thing. I know you're a very spiritual man. I wonder if some of that, if you, we were raised in a, you know, in a church or something like that, that humility and all of that, I wonder if some of that comes from either a misinterpretation or a, uh, uh, like there's always something wrong with you kind of thing. Original sin, original, like there's a, a mindset that we've been indoctrinated into that we are less than. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a Catholic still. You know, a lot of people were raised Catholic, aren't I? am still a practicing Catholic. So talk about the ultimate, you know, feeling of guilt almost my entire life. But, but setting that aside, you know, if somebody, like, like when, when Trump wrote a couple endorsements for my books before he was president, his secretary said, well, Frank, same thing. That's where I learned it. Frank, will mm-hmm. you just drop down? I, I blew it up, man. Let him water it down. And, <laughs> did he, and, and did he, he water it down or did he? Uh, no, he made it even better. better. Great. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, the cover of my tap book, this was his line, groundbreaking deals and a rock star look. That, that, that you know, President Donald Trump, that, that, was, that was his line. So, you know, I, I, I think we struggle enough with self-esteem and self-confidence uh, guilt is a whole other story, right? Because of if you introduce religion into it. Um, but it gets back to my personal branding reference, Doug. Mm-hmm. It's the art of amplifying your essence. And what does that mean? I can break that statement down. The whole branding statement. Let's break it down to three pieces. The art of amplifying your essence. What that means, translated is, what do you do really well? And turn up the volume on it. So, you know, there, there are certain things that I do do well. Okay, it's you're a great marketer, for example. Well, if I'm pretty good at marketing, I'm going to be real good at marketing and I'm going to jump out of a helicopter on top of the roof. You know, that's turning up the, it's, it's amplifying the essence. 
Personal branding is the art of amplifying your essence to the point where your customers, current or future, okay, so let's take that piece. You, you are competing. You've got people that are your customers now or that you want them to be your customers. Part of this is setting yourself apart to the point where your, current, your customers, current or future, become subliminally intoxicated with you first. So get them the, the draw to drop. And then they come and buy the product or service because you're not Coca-Cola, you're not Kleenex, you're not Pepsi, you're not Apple. I mean, these are, these are corporate brands. Mm -hmm. The guided hypnotic is Doug McGurk. It's not a, you know, it, it, without Doug McGurk, the guided hypnotic doesn't exist. So you must amplify your essence to that state where your customers current or future become intoxicated with you, subliminally, by the way. They don't realize that it's happening and then they'll buy your, your program, your, your, your meditation program, because you're so good at it. That's the same thing with my, my houses, Doug. I don't come with the house. The haircut doesn't come with the house. <laughs> Rose-colored shirt doesn't come with the house. That's the 80% substance that's mistaken for 80% flash, that when they open up the front door, that there's the front door right behind me. When they come through that front door, it's the house that wows them. It's the house that blows them away. All I did was get their attention. All I did was get them to the front door. And if, if, the, if the house isn't beautiful, then all of the jumping out of helicopters in the world won't sell it. Right. And so, so then you, you share this is your last. How are you going to amplify your essence and create, you know, you've got your book. Um, I think you shared you were starting to paint. Yeah. Um, but like, so what's next for you? Because there's now another reinvention. Okay, so here's a good lesson. It does, you don't have to follow this lesson, but this is how I'm choosing to approach that. I, I don't get to hop on my unicorn or in my Yugo and ride off into the sunset until this property sells. Mm -hmm. So I do, I'm monomaniac. It's a really good word. Write it down. Monomaniacally focused on that occurrence. I don't allow myself to spend a lot of time. I might think about things that I might want to do, but Doug, it's really easy for me to latch on to something and then go full throttle into that, I can't risk that. I know my right. mindset too well. I can't risk getting overly excited because the pursuit of something new is very exciting. Let's face it. I mean, the mm -hmm. pursuit, pursuit mode in anything in life is exciting. I'm addicted to excitement. And this isn't my opinion. It's my therapist's opinion. <laughs> so Frank, when you were younger, you were addicted to excitement that was self-destructive you know, get, getting arrested all this time and spending all that time in juvenile detention. Uh, I, when you were with the recovery uh, industry and I would speak mm -hmm. at some of the places you worked, I would often, it was so enjoyable to talk to the people that were there because, and, I, and I'm happy to have people disagree with this, but most people going through recovery are never gonna change. They're wired the way they're wired and they are not gonna change. Forgetting the recidivism rate is over 80% in the industry and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, that backs up my, my belief. But what you can do, and you don't even have to be in recovery to follow this. So if I was addicted to excitement and that excitement, that addiction was, was leading the way for self-destructive behavior, and we all have a little bit of that in us, especially those who are wired that way. Well, all I did, I never changed, Doug. I'm still the same guy who's addicted to excitement. I just redirected it from destructive to constructive. Mm -hmm. so, and you, you're way more of an expert than I am in, in, in recovery. But those people, I think they have a gift. 
I think the way the brain is wired to be excited by the, you know, the chemical inducement of drugs or alcohol, that isn't going to change. That's just the way they're wired. But my God, if they can grab onto something constructive versus destructive, you don't even have to turn that receptor off. That synapse can fire. I'm a, I'm a perfect living example. And so are a lot of other, you know, kind of type A people. They found a replacement for self-destructive tendencies. Yeah, we, that, well, that was the work we did. We helped recontextualize exactly that conversation. Uh, one of the ways we would approach it, we would say, you know, how many all, I would ask in group, how many all are, how many are feel like you're successful? So here they are in treatment and they're going, no, very few hands are raised going, yeah, I'm successful. Like I'm in freaking, you know, I just got a detox. What are you talking about? Like I've lost everything. I'm, I'm a failure. Then I would say, okay, well, successful people, um, are they creative? And I'm like, well, yeah. Okay, great. Are, are they focused? Yeah. Are, are they willing to do whatever it takes? Well, yeah. Are they willing to, like, do they take no for an answer? I'm like, well, no. I was like, all right, awesome. So let me ask you something. While you were active in your addiction, looking for your drug of choice, were you creative in the way you approached getting your drug of choice? And they're like, yeah. I said, were you focused on getting your drug of choice? Like, yeah. Were you willing to do whatever it took? And I go through all of that and they'd be like, yeah. I'm like, well, you're, you're freaking successful. Give yourselves a hand. Now let's recontextualize where you put that energy and give you the gift of honoring instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying you're a bad person. You just had behaviors that were deconstructive that were essentially destroying your life when you could actually be using it to rebuild it. And it was a powerful thing. And that's why we loved having you come in because you exemplified it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, getting a little bit technical, Sigmund Freud and other noted psychiatrists say we are who we are. Freud says we are who we are by the age of three, by the way. Hmm. Our, our, the way we will approach the rest of our life is established by the age of three. Other psychiatrists go all the way up, but no, no past the age of 12, by the way. Hmm. So whatever you have learned and been exposed to and been wired to between the age of three and 12 is pretty much how you're going to go through the rest of your life. And, you know, so Ellie, for example, it, it, what, what you see in her personality-wise and, and, and preference-wise and behavior-wise, that's not going to change. And as a matter of fact, the way she it, she's so demonstrative and dynamic, I mean, kids that are a little more subdued maybe have a greater chance of that deviating when they get up to 10, 11, and 12. I think Ellie's pretty much set the way she's going to go. It will become amplified as she mm -hmm. becomes an adult or a young adult. So if that's the case, and we all have skeletons in the closets, uh, closet, and we all have tendencies, it, it, it doesn't have to be you know, self-destructive, but even insecurities, even the lack of belief in yourself, you know, that, that can be as destructive as, as being an alcoholic. I mean, it's more know, destructive because it's it actually, it, it kind of, it's like killing yourself with a butter knife. So you spend more time in pain and you have an illusion of being okay. It's like being a functioning alcoholic. Yeah. So you're able to function, you get to hide it, but you don't take those risks. You live a life of subdued, like, you know, it's you're neither hot nor cold. So I spit you out. It's like, like yeah. it, 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 that's the, that's torture. Yeah. And, and, and be real careful. Uh, and this, this isn't coming from the outside world. It's coming from the inside world here. Be real careful labeling yourself. Yep. Be real, real careful. Because now again, I, I know the treatment, uh, you know, gurus and stuff are going to either quit watching or I'll get hate mail. If I was an alcoholic, I would never say I'm a, a 20 year recovering alcoholic. No freaking way. I'm done with that. That is not my life anymore. 
I don't understand that, and I, we don't have to debate it, but I have had issues like that, that once I have overcome them, I am no longer that, and I will no longer associate with that. I won't even say the word anymore. It's mm -hmm. in my past. I've put it behind me. You know, yes, it's, it's fine to go to the AA meetings. I mean, I'm not, I, I never went through it, so I, I get it. If you go, it's, I'm not knocking it at all, but you're not that. You're not that. You've moved on. You might be something else now. Uh, overcome that. Put it in your past. Don't use the word again. And, and that, that keeps the labels, Doug. I mean, the labels, we get enough of that. I, yep. I mean, I, I, enough negative labeling happens internally and externally. I'll deal with the positive labels. Oh, he's flamboyant. Oh, he's bombastic. Oh, he's egotistical. Oh, he's a showman. Oh, he's this. So what? None of those hurt me. But if somebody said, oh, my God, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's an alcoholic. Look at him out there in the bars. I mean, he does one thing during the day and says another thing in his books and another thing. Well, that, that, that's, that could be a problem. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want that, that kind of label on me. Well, in, our, in, in my program, uh, Freedom Hack, which is, you know, the second step after guided hypnotic, uh, that's one of the, the major uh, parts of that. And that's what we worked on with, the, with our clients in treatment is identity and who you identify as because it's the strongest need in the human psychology. So, yes, if we, we never endorsed referring to you as an alcoholic. We would say you're struggling with drugs or alcohol. I mean, you may have a, a behavioral a relationship with it that is not supporting you, but that's not who you are. Cause I'd ask that just like, sure. Who, you know, what do alcoholics do? And they'd say, lie, cheat, steal, manipulate. So every time you say, hi, I'm Doug, I'm an alcoholic. You're saying that you lie, cheat, steal, and manipulate. And like, Oh, so when you're not doing it, you're feeling incongruent. And then you get to say when you do, ultimately, everyone is going to have a moment where they may lie, may cheat, may misbehave. That you get to go, see, well, I'm an addict. What'd you expect? Right. And now you're living congruent rather than when you talk about, you know, and I love it, um, doing your uh, amplifying your essence. That's taking your identity and amplifying it, essentially, when you, your essence is your identity in many respects. Yeah. Or parts of it. Yeah. And, and, and you say something, too, that's, that's it's, it's okay. You know, you're not an alcoholic, but you're struggling with drugs and alcohol. We all struggle with something. Right. We all struggle. I struggle with excitement. And if I don't have something like a house, there, there is concern. Nils is concerned that when this sells and, and I'm done, like, okay, what, what are you going to replace it with, Frank? I mean, I'm, and, and I have to be cognizant of that I need excitement. And, and if, you know, even at my age, I, I've asked my therapist, like, okay, shouldn't that, like, let's say this is the main line, shouldn't that need for excitement, instead of like a bam main line, shouldn't it just be a little drip like you're in the, in the doctor's office? <laughs> shouldn't it slow down? Because it hasn't slowed down for me yet. And she says, Frank, I'm sorry, probably for you, it won't until you die. So I have to be cognizant if I'm struggling with the need for excitement or replacement for that, what is that going to look like? Uh, and that, those kind of things, Doug, I allow myself to think about. I don't, I don't think about the specific endeavor yet. Right. But be, being cognizant of whatever I'm struggling with is, is, is something that happens on a daily basis. Well, and you're, I think you're very clear about it. And that's, you know, the first step is, you know, know thyself, right? You know, you appreciate, right? And then you can love yourself. 
which allows you to then be free to be yourself, to allow your essence, to allow and, and to have it come out in the art that you do, right? You, it, it, your properties, I mean, th- this property is definitely a reflection of who you are as a person. Yeah, it is. And, and, and it's a fine line in business where, you know, you want to be, I want to be an artist, I wanna, but I don't want to be a struggling artist. And right. so some artists, some artists are so, or starving artists, I should say. Right, yeah. Starving's worse. Some artists are so proud of the artistry that they don't care that they can't make any money. That's foolish. You're right. That's suicidal. I, I, I have to tone down and I have learned my lesson on some of the houses I've done in the past where the right brain being the creative side got a little carried away and it left <laughs> the left brain, the business side, you know, the calculating side in the dust. It didn't, it didn't consult the left brain. <laughs> Uh, and, and I, you know, while we're on right brain, left brain, there's one quick thing I want to tell folks who, who associate with one or the other. Um, this is, this is a revelation that's that came to me over the last few years. You are told and or taught from a very young age that, and let's use your five-year-old daughter as an example. On the outside, it may be perceived as though she has a very strong right brain. She's very creative. She's very, she, she's ingenious. She uses her, is her imagination. Um, so that's going to be the way we push her. And then, but she's probably really bad at math. And she, I'm not saying she is or isn't, but maybe, maybe spreadsheets and, and the business mind isn't hers. My grandfather was a banker. My father was the banker. And I was supposed to follow the lineage as a banker. So when I came to Florida and I started in business, Doug, I didn't have a creative bone in my body because I was conditioned and taught that I had the analytic mind, that I had the spreadsheet mind, that I had the business mind. And I realized on my own, I, wait a minute, I want my right brain engaged. And so I con- it took me, I'm almost going to say it took me a decade. It took me a long time to re-engage and awaken my right brain to the point where maybe five or six years ago, a few of the houses were too creative. You know, people thought this is a beautiful museum, but I wouldn't want to live here. Okay, well, we got to toggle back to the left side of the brain. Now it's, it's I, I get really sad, I'm not sad, but I, I'm, I'm disheartened when somebody says, oh, my partner does the creative stuff, I'm the business mind. My partner does the books, I do the creativity. I do the books, she's the most creative. You've just talked your right brain out of a job. Right. You, you are not right brain or left brain dominant. You've been taught you are, but you're not. Reawaken the side like an artist. I, I've met so many artists that are great at what they do, but they don't make any money because they haven't engaged the left brain. How does one do that? Very, very simply. I, and it took me, well, not very simply. Actually, it's, it's not easy. It took me a decade to, to realize, okay, I'm going to go to museums. I'm going to go to Italy. I'm going to go to the south of France. I'm going to study the architecture of, of, of the influence that would have been taking place here in South Florida, where Addison Meisner was influenced. Not Meisner's work, but where he was influenced. Mm-hmm. And I read, I read books on that subject. I read books on, on creativity and on ingenuity. And I realized in business today, it's creativity and ingenuity that's rewarded. It really is. So I said, oh, my God, I have to, to compete in this world of building spec homes. I have to be ingenious. I have to be creative. I have to implement the world's only aquasphere. 
and there's a few touches like that in every single one of my houses. Once it wakes up, Doug, uh, it's not, <clears throat> it doesn't take an effort to keep it awake. Mm. It's just, it's been since, since Ellie was a little girl, perhaps one side of her brain was suppressed to allow the creative and the, and the, and the you know, the, the, the imaginative side to come out. Make sure you spend time on the other part. It may be boring to her. Doing math right now and, and, and looking at little spreadsheets and understanding business would be super boring to her. But expose her to it. So, yeah, and for her, she, you're absolutely right. But she actually, she does get a little bit into math. She does like doing math and counting. So that's encouraging. And that's the challenge for, I think, all of us is like we, where we want to allow people to just be themselves and encourage that. And then sometimes, you know, like I, I, growing up, I wanted to always rock. That's always my thing. Like since I was a kid, I was playing guitar at four. I always wanted to do that. My dad's a banker, a lawyer, and it was always like, Douglas, what you need is a fallback position. You need a job. You need to, you know, have a career, go to school and all that. And I'm like, I, dad, uh, uh, good voice. Yeah, well, that's it. That's how it. I, <laughs> I, I, I've shared this. I got to find the video. I was 14. We were in this. So we didn't like growing up. We were cultured. We didn't go to like Disney or I might went to Disney the first time I was like 24. Um, but uh, we were at the Smithsonian and um, I had one of those little umbrellas. I think I was 13, 13 or 14. I had those, remember those glasses that had the leather on the sides and the hooks yeah. around the ears? I'm wearing those at braces and I took the umbrella and it was wrapped still, but it, I, it shot it forward and we were having an old video camera and I go into there and I shot the, cam the thing at the, the, um, the camera at my dad. And he's, he stands there, he goes, Douglas, I'm patiently awaiting the day that you grow up. And that was the influence. And I, you know, like didn't have the, the ability to just be self-expressed was very often shot down. Um, so I think, and I bring that up because that's like with Ellie kind of the, and you know, Ashes as a fellow father um, with, with Laura, did you like, how did you balance that of, of maybe correcting some patterns or things? Oh, I'll never do that. Cause I was raised that way and I saw problems and, you know, here we are kind of, we, we do our best to allow Ellie be as self-expressed as possible because we both Heidi and I were not encouraged to be as self-expressed by any stretch. Mm -hmm. Well, you do a good job of that. That's for sure. Cause her, 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 <laughs> future is extremely bright and, and probably in some kind of, you know, performing arts. Uh, there's no Very doubt. Likely. One, what, one simple exercise I did with Laura is, and this is, this is more about life than just being um, right brain, left brain was we travel a lot. We used to travel a lot more uh, to, especially Haiti and, you know, speaking of engagements, having an only child, just like you have an only child, I uh, took her everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in the airports, Doug, I, not Nilsa, Nilsa really didn't like this part, but I made sure that, you know, you have those moving sidewalks, go the opposite direction of each other. And I made her, sometimes I had to bribe her, but I made her get on the opposite side of the moving sidewalk and go against the flow. Hmm. I made her go on the opposite side where people were saying, little girls don't do this. You're gonna get hurt. You're going in the wrong direction. You need to go with everybody else and do what they're doing. That's life. And I knew that, that, that 
to, to set yourself apart and do the whole branding thing we talked about, she was going to have to get used to going against the grain and, and being told all of these things that all these big adults, by the way, she's terrified because they're all, you know, way bigger. How than old her. was she? I started that at four years old. And you still make her do it? Right, like right when she could walk. And she did it until she was 16. Now, early on, you know, I say, you get to the other end, we'll get a candy bar, we'll get a little, you know, stuffed toy. But you've got to endure because there is a reward when you endure mm-hmm. society, when you endure ridicule, when you endure being told you're not doing the right thing, you're going the wrong direction. Little girls, don't do this. Ellie would probably have no problem doing it. Um, and, and, and she'd do it yeah, on her own. <laughs> yeah, she, she would. Most kids didn't. And, and, and over the time, to- over time, I saw, you know, and, and again, not, not that we did it a hundred times. We might've done it 20 times in our life or 25 times. Look at the result. I mean, my daughter was, president of, yeah. you know, pe- president of Penn state university, 46,000 kids. She was the head honcho president and before that she was vice president she was class president freshman sophomore junior senior year of her, of her high school class ah so, so you're endorsing her for president of the united of states i am remember i just said a woman should be <laughs> i know yeah and mckinney 2036 and it's a female mckinney it's not a male yeah. mckinney <laughs> laura mckinney 2036 although she hates politics she's more of an ambassador than a politician. There's a big difference. And yeah. right now you got to have thick skin and she's very sensitive. So I don't know if politics is in her, you know, in her future, but back to that exercise. So as she was younger, we would, I would, and Nilsa came along, came around. I said yes more than no. So she put a chair, like if she took this chair and she put it up against the wall to turn on the light fixture, you know, the natural reaction of the parent is you're going to don't do that. Don't stand on the chair. You're going to hurt yourself. If she hurt herself, she's going to learn. Mm-hmm. Maybe she should ask mom and dad for some help. So I always said yes more than no to what she wanted to do. And I forced her to go against the grain, to be, to set herself apart, to build the confidence, to say I'm going this direction because I believe in this direction, even though it was the wrong direction going down the moving sidewalk. And Does and, she remember that? Does she ever talk about? Oh, uh, yeah. She talks about it all the time. And what was her, what is, how does she talk about it now? Terrifying. Terrifying. Not does, she appreciate, does she appreciate it or? Oh, yeah. She, okay. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she appreciates it. She, she, she appreciates that. And, and Doug, the other thing that, you know, and again, we're not teaching people how to raise their kids, but. Well, it's how you do anything's how you do everything. So I, I like, I find this really fascinating and telling as to how, how much you believe in what you're doing and who you are. And, and I, I just, I, I think it's very valuable. You know, young people today, um, and again, you know, Ellie's what, 15 years younger than Laura. There's, there's a tremendous amount of social pressure, pressure yep. in general, internal pressure. One thing we never did is put pressure on her for grades. Mm-hmm. If she brought home a C, it meant, C, I'm smart. That's what I told her. And she's in tears and she's beating herself up. Honey, look, C, I'm smart. If you got a detention, which I think she got one for chewing gum once, I took her to Applebee's. It's okay to rebel a little bit. I, I don't care about your grades. I don't, well, I, I care, but I'm not going to pressure you about your grades. And if you express yourself by whatever, chewing gum one day, so be it. And, and now, the, inter- the, 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 the internal pressure that she puts on herself to, to succeed is far greater 
than I ever could have put on her. Uh, and and by the way, you know, going to Penn State, it's presumed it's, it's assumed that she had you know straight A's. So she went into that school with a basically a 3.0 average, and mm. she came out with a 3.1 or 3 3.2 average. I encouraged her to get involved in extracurricular stuff, and and it paid off. I mean, you know, you don't get elected president because you got straight A's. It's right. because all the different factions that she was involved with, when she ran for president of that huge college, she got elected. That goes all the way back to how we didn't pressure her to get straight A's. And I think that's instructive because I, I think in many ways you were going against the curve uh, or the, the grain when you started building the houses you were doing and so forth. Like you were the Thornton Mellon of, uh, of like spec properties because I'm sure there were a lot of people who had academic knowledge or experience that had a certain opinion when it wasn't actually what real life is. So I think that translated to Laura where she was able to come from real life as opposed to just academia. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, 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 I never wanted, you know, because I didn't go to school, Doug, or I didn't go to college, I made it a point after high school for her, you have to tell daddy, why are you going to college? Because life really is about purpose. And if you don't have purpose in life, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. And I said, you need to tell daddy why, if you want to go, okay, is an if. If you don't want to go, that's cool. And if you do want to go, why? If you don't want to go and you want to start your own business, it costs daddy $200,000 to send you to a nice college, rounding up for, you know, yeah. assuming it's not going to a state college. Like she, she wanted to go outside of Florida. So there was no, you know, Florida prepaid didn't, didn't apply to going to Penn State. And I said, look, it's going to cost me around 200 grand. I'll give you $100,000 right now out of high school to start your own business, just like dad did. But that's it. You're done. You've saved daddy 100,000. I don't have to pay the full 200. You'll take the hundred, you'll start a business. I offered that to her. And if you don't take that, you got to tell dad why you're going. You can change the reason why later, but I don't want to hear I'm going to find myself. I'm going to determine what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. That's bullshit. I want to know exactly why you're going to college. And she, you know, during college, she did kind of change a little bit. She actually got into an entrepreneurial minor and majored in broadcast journalism. But that set her up for identifying purpose in life, not just floating around out there like a lot of young people do today. Beautiful. And uh, you've obviously done a, a tremendous job. So right now, then, what is your purpose? And, and we could kind of wrap up on, on all of this. What is your purpose moving forward? I have, uh, I have a bunch of books I've written, as you know, and I have uh, a calling a professional highest calling to build houses with aqua spheres in them. But I have, I have a, a, a spiritual highest calling as well as you, the viewer, everybody watching Doug's program has a spiritual highest calling. You may not know what it is now, but I encourage you not to focus solely on that professional highest calling, which is the gift God gave you to put food on the table and put money in the bank and pay your bills. We all have a professional highest calling. What we do for a living, what's your spiritual highest calling? Uh, what's your spiritual purpose, as Doug just asked. And Doug, if it wasn't for me finding that pretty late in life, you know, my mid-30s, I was a miserable, wealthy, 
young man. Uh, made a lot of money selling spec houses, but I was depressed. And is this, is this what it's all about? Like I work really hard, come from nothing, and I feel like shit. Until we started our Caring House Project Foundation, which is the entity that has built 27 self-sufficient villages in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, that being Haiti. And so I'm able to put together my professional highest calling, what I do for a living. I build building houses that people don't really even, you know, they don't need to put a roof over the head. They already have four houses. But we sell those and so we can go over to Haiti and build a bunch of little houses for people who are living in mud shacks covered with palm fronds for a roof and, you know, rodents, basically rodents the size of this bottle, you know, like the size of a cat gnawing on the, the children's fingers and toes as they sleep, running across the floor. Uh, that purpose that I discovered 20 years ago probably saved my life. It allowed me not to get involved in pursuing exciting things that could be destructive. It gave me a reason to get up in the morning. To this day, uh, I feel as a, as a responsible steward for the, God, the blessings God's given me, I'm very grateful that he opened. See, for a while there, there was no heart in my soul or there was no soul in my heart. <laughs> I'd lost both. Uh, it was all about materialistic and consumeristic things, Doug. It was about making money and putting more clothes in my, garage, clothes in my closet and cars in my garage. And finding that spiritual highest calling, which you supported and Heidi has supported, you know, buying tons of our books and coming to all our events and donating to, to Caring House, we've been able to take 12,400 children that were eating those mud patties flavored with lemon juice, and now they're living a self-sustaining existence in a beautiful new house in, in a self-sustaining village. You know, that... It's a whole other interview maybe in the future. We should, we, we're cutting this short. I'm selling this short. We can skip over happiness and land on joy. When we are able to put together our professional highest calling with our spiritual highest calling. Doesn't mean Frank McKinney's joyous every day of his life. Absolutely not. But it does mean that I have purpose every day. And, and, and it's beyond just the aquasphere here. It's, it's waiting to for Haiti, because we just did a COVID campaign for Haiti. Haiti's getting clobbered by COVID. You don't hear about it because they're all interested in our country and the elections yeah. and the political thing and the unrest. Civil unrest was happening in Haiti a year ago. It made what was going on in the United States look like child's play, like two children's fighting on a, on a kindergarten. So, you know, we're still over there in the midst of civil unrest there and COVID trying to do our thing to build our 28th self-sufficient village. So I, for the viewers, you know, th this book, The Tap, it, it's of, my, of the six books, this is the how to succeed in the business of life. And, and it really, you know, this is the hand of God coming down, tapping you on the shoulder, calling you to more. It teaches you how to recognize life's great tap moments and how to act on them. That, I believe, Doug, will give you, uh, the viewer, the purpose that we all seek. Beautiful. So how would they get in touch with you to, to get the book, to learn more about the Caring House and, and contribute and, and add more value? I think that we talked about Disney, uh, Disneyland, Disney World a little minute ago. If you want to not leave your house and go, go to Disney World, go to frank-mckinney.com. It's my website, of course, frank-mckinney.com. On that website, you can take tours of houses like this. You can take, not uh, virtual tours, you can get in and actually I give you a guided tour of, of this house and other houses I've sold. You can read um, 
sample chapters. Like here's my, here's my newest book, The Other Thief. You can read sample chapters in all my books. You can go to Haiti and you can, on, on a Google Maps presentation, you can see the villages that we've built over there. So it is kind of like a Disney experience. And on that website, Doug, you can click on the Caring House Project Foundation, not only visit Haiti, but make a donation. We have 78 different donation options that range from a $4.75 chicken, they went up 50 cents, $4.75 chicken, all the way up to an entire village for about 285,000, we can build a whole village. And so that's where, and even if you bought one of the books on our website of the $25 purchase, about 20 bucks of that goes to uh, buying meals for the kids who are eating dirt. So that's 200 meals replacing the dirt that the children were eating just from buying one single book. Uh, it's a no-brainer. I'm, I'm sure uh, our our audience will be uh, supporting for sure. And and your books are obviously uh, phenomenal. And, and the fact that you've covered so many genres is impressive alone. And I guess that's back to your addiction to excitement and challenge to hit multiple genres at once. And didn't you release two at once at one point? Was it two at once or three? Three. Three at one time. Yep. So you got real quick. This is the, this is my first book, make it big. This is more of a philosophical book following make it big. My publisher said, this was a different publisher back then, Doug, this is Wiley. They said, that's great. You fancy yourself a philosopher, but you're a real estate guy. So write a real estate book. <laughs> so my first real estate book was Frank McKinney's Maverick Approach to Real Estate Success. It's the only one of the six that's a paperback. <laughs> and then following that book, I wrote the three at one time, The Tap, which is the spiritual book that I just referenced. Uh, Burst This, which is my most recent real estate book. This is really everything I know, 300 and some pages in real estate. I charge 950 bucks an hour if you want me to coach you. It goes to the caring house. This is $30 and you can learn the same thing by reading that. Uh, and then because I walk my daughter to school every single day for uh, 10 years, 1,652 times, I wrote a young reader fantasy novel based on that, those walks. And then my most recent book is a Christian romance novel, novel titled The Other Thief. You are truly a renaissance man, and we didn't even get into your ultramarathoning and all the other crazy stuff you've done. Uh, so in honor of your time, thank you so much for sharing of yourself, and we'll put that website, you know, your site in the description, both the podcast and on YouTube. And um, man, I, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us. Any final words, any final advice? You know what? I mean, I, I'd like, this has been, you know, an hour and a half. Um, you referenced the world hurting and, and it's hurting. It's, it's, we are hurting as a, as a society, as individuals. You know, I hurt. I hurt. I'd like to maybe when you get done with all your other folks, come back and let's spend more time on that spiritual side. Let's spend yeah. more time on the, on the tap side. We kind of glossed over that. Um, and your, your program isn't a specific to anything. It was just nope. kind of our, my fault that I didn't go there a little sooner. It's not a real estate program. And, and, and let's try to heal. You know, you're really good at it as, as not just a, you know, a host, but as a guest. And maybe we spend a little bit more time on that to whom much is entrusted, much is expected. Spirit. Well, let's just book it and we'll, we'll, we'll just do it. There's no, there's no rules. No, let's, oh. but let's jump there's right no into rules. That. There's no rules. I just want to tell you, hi, 
And people are messaging me right now saying, wow, this is such a powerful interview. Uh, I'm loving this. This is great. Such wisdom. So just want to tell you. For a while, your head got cut off. (laughs) Am I here? All right. Yeah, I mean, Doug, I got to tell you, you know, you know, I've done a bunch of interviews. You have a way of pulling out what people need to hear. And I watched you do it when you were working in the recovery business. Um, you were working with people that were hurting real bad and you, you turn around a lot of lives. So taking that gift that you have to a, a new audience, a new format, um, let's do it toward the spiritual side. Yep. Not preaching at you, not throwing the Bible at you, not pounding the pulpit, but helping you, helping you overcome some of the hurt. I, I'm 100% on board. I think sometimes I, right now as well, I follow your lead. And so let's schedule it because sometimes it's, it's a little touchy because people don't know how to respond right now. And they're at a loss for words because they are also in pain. And, you know, I posted the other day, I just, I made a comment like, you know, Hey, you know, maybe we could look at different questions we could be asking uh, to lead us towards healing. And, um, because I, I'm just noticing, you know, like our life is all questions, right? Our, all we do is ask questions, you know, what's going on and what does it mean and what do I do? And one of the, someone responded back and they're like, we don't need healing. We need change. And kind of like adamant, like upset. And I'm like, well, all right. He, change is healing. Healing is change. Um, not all change is healing. Um, but healing would be change, would be positive transformation. And I think finding that delicate way to come from that spiritual place of love and honor, respect, and and empathizing with everybody's pain, because it's not just one person, one group, one organization, one, you know, ideology that is hurting right now. Um, And the challenge I see is that we're focused more on process rather than purpose. Yeah. Let's do it. We'll do it next time. We'll jump right into it. Okay, perfect. I, well, we'll send you the, the link. We got it. We'll have a new one. And so people be staying tuned to come up and uh, we'll make a little more fanfare as to when that uh, when we'll be doing that so they could tune in live and then download it when we're done. Good deal. All right. Bye, awesome, everybody. Buddy. I Thanks. love you for who you are and who you aren't. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much for stopping by and hanging with us and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast right here and we look forward to serving you even more remember download your free guided hypnotic meditation at guidedhypnotic.com that's guidedhypnotic.com where you'll get your free anxiety busting meditation We look forward to serving you, and if you have any questions, comments, please feel free to reach out. All right, we love you for who you are and who you aren't. God bless.